which is going to be led by Dr. Bindran Mialo from uh, Loughborough, who lectures in publishing there and works on modernist writers and earlier. Um, and he's, um, he works primarily in the field of literary manuscripts and has produced several scholarly editions. His major book project at the moment is called is On the Archaeology of the Poem, which looks at poets from Wordsworth right through to Ted Hughes. And he's currently president of the European Society for Textual Criticism. So we're going to hand over to him for the afternoon Thank you, session. Thank you. Thank you, Karen and Roger. Thank you for uh, having me. Uh, pleasure to talk to you about editorial matters. Um, this is, okay, it's, it's a, it's a three-hour marathon session, although I think we get tea in the We morning. will, yes. Um, but also, and I've got loads of stuff, I've got way too much stuff, but please, you know, interrupt, ask questions, because um, this is supposed to be, you know, not supposed to be, I want this to be a bit more of an open uh, discussion, so I haven't got a script or anything, I'll just kind of talk to you, uh, my slides. Um, very helpfully, Catherine set the tone this morning, so I can skip a few bits. Uh, not well, skip, kind of be a bit briefer about it, but maybe kind of fill in a few uh, minor uh, minor gaps. So um, the first bit in part one is I've got three parts, by the way, but two or three are shorter. Uh, the first is about textual scholarship theories and methods, okay? And these are a couple of questions that I want to address. What is it? What is it not? What does it do? What is it for? And who is it for? And a little bit about terminology, and, and again, Catherine has already dealt with this this morning, and then, but just to kind of visualise it for you. And I've just put textual scholarship up there as a kind of umbrella term which includes aspects of editing, or not aspects, it includes editing, uh, but perhaps also other uh, work with text, you know, critique genetique, or, or uh, uh, sorry, manuscript studies, it's a form of textual scholarship. Bibliography might be a form of textual scholarship. Code ecology and paleography, if those terms mean anything to you, would be seen as a form of textual scholarship. Now, Catherine talked a lot about textual criticism. If you read the literature, particularly, say, Fretz and Bowles and Tansell, you might come across the term textual editing. Or you might come across the, the term scholarly editing. What's the difference between the three? There isn't. <laughs> Helpfully or unhelpfully, these terms are used um, each to his own taste, as it were. There might be a tendency uh, for early modern scholars to talk about textual criticism. Um, there are certain among us who prefer scholarly editing to avoid criticism, to avoid textual editing, because textual editing is a confusing term. And have people say, well, I'm a textual editor, or I'm a textual scholar, because I pay close attention to the text. Like, no, that's not <laughs> what it means. It has a specific remit. There's all sorts of others, and you know, again, Catherine talked about this, eclectic editing, copy text editing, digital editing, which we'll hear more about, and unediting, which I will leave hanging for the moment, <laughs> what, what it might mean. Um, so just you know, a couple of terms to remind, them, remind you of them as well. So to my questions, 
What is scholarly editing? Okay, there's a variety of answers, and again, through um, the quotations that Catherine gave you this morning, you might already have a good idea. But just put it a bit more succinctly. Yeah, the scholarly editing is the establishment of a authoritative text, normally involving the removal of textual errors. Um, <clears throat> definitive text has gone out of the window at least since 1984, uh, <laughs> thankfully. Authoritative came in its place, um, and I put authoritative also between scare quotes. Not that it is a suspect concept, but the question is, you know, whose authority are we talking about? And that is an important <laughs> issue. Um, now, establishing that text involving involves the removal of textual errors and how do we do that through the application of an editorial rationale which must be a fit for purpose and b consistently applied okay i will say more in a minute about editorial rationales um, there are rationales that are as it were out there for you that you can look at and, and as it were apply um, you can invent your own rationale. Uh, and certainly, what Hans Gardner did with the critical and synoptic edition for Ulysses, he invented his own rationale, and that was part of the controversy. Uh, but I would say it was fit for purpose, and it was consistently, 99% consistently, 98% consistently applied. Okay. Um, and this must involve Again, this rationale must involve a consistent and accurate recording of textual variants and editorial innovations. And this is important. Okay? In essence, what makes it scholarly, or the most important part of what makes an edition scholarly, is C. You make changes to the text, you can do whatever you want. Okay? You can apply, you can apply an extremely unpopular editorial rationale, but at least if you're recording things in great detail, at great length and consistently, anyone can see what you have done. And it's up to the user then to either say, well, okay, I don't agree, but I can see what, what he or she has done. And finally, scholarly editing involves the placing of the text and its textual and bibliographical history within its wider critical and historical context. Um, so it's about the, the history of the text, as well as establishing a text. Okay. Both sit at either end, as, as it were, of what a scholarly edition is. So what is scholarly editing not? Okay. Um, something that we hear from the literary critics is like, oh, you know, this new edition, all this excellent scholarly work that has gone into it is fantastic, but, you know, I prefer the old one better. Um, uh, when, when I was assisting with uh, uh, an HRC application for a scholarly edition, uh, of T.S. Eliot for the AHRC. Um, we got the assessments back from the peer reviewers 
and uh, the peer reviewer was positive. One of the peer reviewers was positive, saying, you know, well, fine scholarly work, but we already have editions of T.S. Eliot, so why do we need this one? Um, there's a sense that editing is meddling with the text. Um, that you, you, you change, you know, you change the words on the page. Um, of course you do. But it's not meddling. And why it's not meddling is what I'm, you know, what we've been trying to, uh, to explain to you. Why isn't it meddling? Because it's reasons. Because you have a rationale. You have good grounds to do so. Um, and of course it takes us away from the notion that there is such a thing as the text. Okay. Um, the, the notion that text simply exists, and that's what Catherine was alluding to as well with that disappearance of this notion of the word. The idea that there is simply the text is nonsensical. We have texts. We live in a world of textual plurality. And it is certain schools of literary criticism and theory that have actually tried to do away with that world of textual plurality, or have tried to ignore it, that that, um, that, that existed. Um, there's a flip side to it, that actually very often um, writers don't care about the textual plur plurality that they create. Um, particularly in the modernist period of the early, early 20th century, there's plenty of examples of writers who are, at any one time, creating multiple versions of their text. They are creating variants. Not just through revision. I mean, that's one aspect of it. You know, people like Yeats, but also Tennyson and Wordsworth, um, Ted Hughes, um, they're all revisers. They revise their work even after publication. Um, but you have another writer, uh, another type of writer or poet, which includes Yeats, but which also includes Eliot, or Wolfe, or, um, or Lawrence, um, who actually all simultaneously create two versions. Some of it has to do with the um, conditions of production, i.e. how a work gets printed and published. Um, and because of copyright reasons, um, American editions had to be printed in the US. So you've got usually at some sort of after about 1880s when the US signed up to international copyright law. Um, so you have at some point usually with most English writers a bifurcation where they are working for the English, the UK publication, and they are working for the US publication. And you can see them working with perhaps duplicates over typescripts, and making changes and revisions that go to the English printer. And then they try and do the same on a duplicate set of revisions for the US printer, but they're not the same. And this happens sometimes, it could be within months, but sometimes within weeks or days of one another. This bifurcation happens. Um, if you take someone uh, like T.S. Eliot, who, if you think of it, uh, was in the best possible position to create a stable text of his works, he never managed to do so. <laughs> so, Eliot, okay, first of all, his output, it's fantastic, but it's not large. So it's quite a contained oeuvre. 
Um, second, he was a very meticulous person. He was an editor, but also he was his own publisher. Okay? He, he was about around the corner, director of the publishing company that published his books. So he has, of any poet, any writer that I know of, he had the ability to, to retain most control of the actual production process of his work. And yet, it didn't happen. In, in, you know, after, after the 1930s, Collective Poems comes out. And then there's a Select Poems. And it's like, oh, there were some typographical errors. Okay, correct them. But they're not, you know, not doing well. Not all of them. And then there's a new Collective Poems. And it's like, oh, there were some others. And I need to transfer. And you just never managed to get both texts from the Collective Poems and Selected Poems identical. Okay. In, small, in a small uh, manner, it's relating to the minutiae, relating to hyphens and commas, etc. But he never managed to get the texts of his selected and collected poems in sync with one another. Uh, so it's a condition of life, it's a condition of writing, that we have textual plurality. Okay, the authority of the scholarly edition derives from... Two, um, two sources. First of all, again, it's this editorial rationale, okay, which must be reasoned, um, consistently applied, and fit for purpose. I mean, it must be defensible. You know, you, mu you must at least find one person who agrees with the rationale in order to be for it to be scholarly. Um, but there's also a bibliographical issue. There's also a bibliographical source. It's the authority of the texts that you are working with yourself. Um, and this is, say, a problem for early modern editors. Um, because with Shakespeare, the texts that survive aren't Shakespeare's own. We haven't got a manuscript, certainly haven't got a typescript. He wasn't involved, as far as we know, in seeing his works, his texts through the press. Um, so there's that distance that we have. With someone as T.S. Eliot, for example, we do, we do have that. There is that proximity between the text and the author. Um, so the, the primary source um, that you look at is the authority of the document in which you find the text. Does the, does the document come from the author? Was the author involved in its production? Um, if there are changes, who is responsible for those changes? Can these changes be attributed to the author? Or is this another agent in the process? Okay. If it's another agent, is that agent reliable? Was the agent acting on the author's behalf? Or is that agent introducing what? we now then consider a corruption. Okay. So that, that, what, what Platon was saying about the language is very important because it's how we see the level of, um, uh, of nature of the interference with the text at that point. Okay. Is, that, is that person bona fide or not? Okay. The, the wife or spouse of the author? Perhaps yes. The typist Usually no. Um, so what makes 
what makes a, 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 an edition, what's the difference actually? Kind of pointing, pointing towards the note there. What is the difference between a scholarly edition and other editions, such as the world's classics? And in a sense, in the UK, we have a bit of a fluid field um, because scholarly editing is often perhaps confused with other types of editing. Now, I don't want to you know, show any disrespect to the people who make the world's classics or the Penguin classics and all that. I think it's valuable work. But there are differences. So what, what, <coughs> what, in your view, is the difference between, say, a world's classics or the OUP, the new OUP, Shakespeare edition? Well, I can tell you what the OWC editor says to you, which is that it's for um, a popular audience, but it's for students, okay. a popular audience. They don't want to be disrupted in their reading flow. You shouldn't over-annotate. Uh -huh. um, you shouldn't be fussy about your text. Decide on a text and be assertive about it. You can have an appendix if you like, but decreasing so. Okay. Um, so don't obsess about variants. Okay. Just try and be confident about the edition yeah. that we've decided on. Yeah. Very good. And do they give you the edition? And they tend, well, you tend to have a decision made about, about the edition you use in, in general, but that has changed in 15 years since I've worked with OWC. Uh -huh. So when I started, um, I did Henry James, I wanted to do the first edition, uh, and I was told, no way, uh, because at that point, you know, it's the end intention, so you must use the New York edition, uh -huh. uh, and was told in no uncertain terms that... Cambridge and Oxford would not use this edition if it was not the New York edition. Okay. Um, by, but by now, it's much more conventional to say uh -huh. use first uh, print edition and then talk about various if they're substantial, yeah. but don't obsess about them. That's usually what Okay, that, thank you for that. <laughs> um, now, just to um, play devil's advocate, not play devil's advocate, but just to... Um, uh, just be stubborn, really. Um, when I listen to a lot of editors of scholarly editions, um, they often come up with the same arguments. You know, readers don't want to be uh, interrupted in the flow of their text. Uh, a lot of scholarly editors that I know, they don't want footnotes or diacritics in their text. Um, when it comes to annotation, of course, we will have annotation, but annotations still have to be concise. They have to be to the point, they have to be useful. Uh, so a lot of the things that you're saying, yeah, sure. also in practice, mm -hmm. come back in scholarly editing. Because the ardent editions of Shakespeare, for example, are very heavily annotated sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes down to you know just a line or two lines yeah. on a page. So it's not it's not a hard and fast rule. The question of the user uh, is also important. You're saying for a kind of general, well, student readership is is a primary market. Um, scholarly editions. Uh, and, and, you know, the publishers absolutely seem to insist on that still as well. Scholarly editions are also still produced for a general readership. We'll come back to that uh, in, in a bit. Okay, so, good. I'm not quite there yet. Yes. Now, I was talking you were... Anyone else? You don't know what... You don't know where the text came from, therefore you don't know what's been done to it. Okay. Now, if I hear Roger well, he says, well, we do know where the text okay. comes from, because it's the first edition or the revised edition. Again, it really depends. If you don't have it there. Sorry? It's not there in the edition. 
So you can't see what it was and therefore what's been done. You have to seek it out. It depends on the annotations you're making and the decision that you make. So it, it might, it's, 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 it's individual in each case, actually. Um, but usually now you go for, say, I've just done... That's uh, a bad example. I've just done the Time Machine by H.G. Wells, which actually has four early iterations before the first edition. Uh, and the second edition appears just before the first, just to confuse you, in America. Um, so there are lots of kind of versions, but you go for the first edition and you talk about how it's kind of edited beyond it, which is different from the previous generation, say Patrick Parinder, who always went for the last intention, so the 1931 edition. Uh, so that's my understanding of it. So my, my, why I would go for the, that first edition in that case is because you have a starting point and then you can kind of talk about variants that flow from it. But it's a decision. I'm not saying it's the right one. What was your point that the reader doesn't have the other editions? To Sorry, I, I, I may have been answering the wrong question. It was yeah. the question, what the what's the difference between... Yeah, no, 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 no you're absolutely right. It's called the edition, the world's classic. Um, I mean, even if they tell you what their editorial practices are, for example, if they say I've silently amended, you know, U to V or something, you're not going to know where that's actually happened. You're not seeing the original. You're just seeing the result of a process. Okay. That, that, yes. I mean, Roger, Roger actually did indicate that as well. And I, you know, selfishly... For the purposes of discussion, be wide about Okay, it, uh, Roger said we don't have lists with varying readings, mm. and that's what the um, the world scholarly edition to be controversial. Uh, that's what the world's classics doesn't have, and indeed also any kind of silent emendation of the text. Generally, the principle is that you reprint. Uh, a textus receptus, as it is called in classics and in traditional textual scholarship, the received text, whether that is the first edition or again a later edition, um, it's a text that is, exists and you, hopefully without introducing new textual errors, you reprint that faithfully, um, which in itself is fine, because actually... We see that also in scholarly, a particular type of scholarly edition now also does that. Does that even more frequently now than it was the case 20 years ago. Um, but there is that issue of then corrections of what are called obvious mistakes. And that's where it begins to be tricky. Because what is an obvious mistake? Okay. And then the second bit is these, these, um, these corrections, these inundations are usually done silently. The reader isn't told that there is a change, and that's um, where did I put this? I put this somewhere. It's on the previous slide. Yeah, it's recording. First of all, the changes that you make as an editor, in addition to, and that's part of the critical apparatus of the scholarly edition. In addition to recording all the variants that exists between the different. Uh, editions that are available to you, or the major editions in some cases, because sometimes the number of editions, certainly if it begins to include typescripts and manuscripts, is just too overwhelming to record in, in record in print format. So it's that it's it's documenting what you do, okay, and that is that is part of its authority uh, as well, but it's part of what distinguishes um, other editions which are done by scholars from 
the scholarly edition. And in a way, um, but it's a bit of a mouthful, in Germany they prefer the term historical critical edition <laughs> rather than scholarly edition. Because um, it, it indicates it's critical editing, it's a result of a critical intervention, it's, it is a form of criticism, uh, but it is historical, it is based on the evidence, the bibliographical evidence that is available to you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Without that distinction? And again, no, no, no disrespect to of these other types of editions, because they are valuable and they serve a point. But sometimes there's a bit of a there's a bit of a fluidity between the two in the way people talk about it. So I just add one more thing to this. There's also the the for example in the Shakespeare editions there's Lots of world classics for scholarly editions, and there's also variorum editions, which record every uh, editorial emendation ever made to the text across all editions. But scholarly editions don't necessarily need to do that. But that's a principle that's been adapt uh, adopted by editors within a variorum edition, because what they're doing is recording a history of the textual engagements with the text, rather than trying to actually individually engage with the text to produce a new text for mm -hmm. a new generation of readers. So I think there's a, there's a subtle distinction between those, yeah. those two processes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Excellent. Okay. So, here we go. So, what does scholarly editing do? I think, you know, it's already implied. Editors correct the text, and I, again, in light of what Catherine said, I, I preempted this also by putting that between uh, scare quotes. It's an intervention by removing the accidents of textual transmission. Um, okay, we accept that there are textual errors, but I think, at least with some of us, we have moved beyond that kind of language that Bowers was using, that it's not simply the removal of corruption, but of accidents in the textual transmission. Okay? It recognises, I mean, it's more of a neutral formulation, but also it recognises that textual transmission implies error, that it's inevitable, but that it creates a textual multiplicity rather than being simply a negative thing. Um, this is also, among others, a result of how editing is done uh, for medieval works, where we have a, usually a different situation. Um, we haven't got autograph documents. We haven't got documents usually that, that emerged from the writer, the hand of the writer. There's copies of copies, so we have this lost exemplar that certainly throughout the 19th century and a lot of the 20th century was the ideal of textual criticism. That that's early that all text would be restored, would be reconstructed. Um, medieval editors have moved away from that and are recognising that you have versions, as it were, of that text in different manuscripts and different witnesses. Uh, and yes, there are textual errors, as it were, that, need, that one would want to correct, uh, but it's a bit more of a level playing field rather than a simple hierarchical or origin um, that you want to reconstruct. The intervention is not just, again, not just a meddling with, but it's, me it's a form of mediation, and hence a form of interpretation. Um, you mediate between the historical record which you have available and, you, and that notion of the work 
perhaps that ideal construct, which is never attainable, of course, but which the author herself wants to emulate, but then creates textual plurality. And in a way, as editors, we are creating texts, as Catherine said, that didn't exist before. We are contributing to the, to the plurality. But we're doing so with a historical sense. Um, it's not simply about the removal of corruption. It is about an attempt to create a text that is perhaps a bit more ideal. Okay. Um, and just a, a small quotation from, uh, from Peter Schillensburg, another book from Gutenberg to Google. Editing creates new texts that represent the works of the past. The idea of representation, I think, is an important shift from the language uh, used, among others, by Bowers. So what is it for? I was kind of saying what I've said before, to establish a critically edited text that adequately represents the work. Okay? The second one is an addition to that, and that's where the critical and textual criticism stands for. It is to present an argument about the work's textual condition and its, the history of its creation and transmission, and to record that history. Okay? So, an addition is an argument. Okay? It is more than simply, it's, well, when you represent, you know, that's a rhetorical exercise. Um, so, hence, you know, definitive has all gone long out of the door. Um, but that doesn't mean that editing is no longer a valuable exercise to do. Um, I mean, this perhaps is another good question to, to ask. Is it necessary? Is it necessary to edit? Why do we, why do we edit? Why are Scott and Joe spending years of their lives on <laughs> editing Dorothy Richardson? It's so hugely problematic. Shakespeare, you know. How many editors have we had? How many editions have we had? Why do it? Particularly now that we have the digital means to actually represent the all the historical versions. Why? Is it like purely practical in the sense that the amount of time that it takes to access these complicated texts, mm -hmm. it's just impossible for every scholar to go and do that individually. Yes. So on a practical level, we need some people to do that work uh -huh. before we can do other work. Uh -huh. And that's where that yes. brings in yeah. lots of other problems. It's just... Necessary? Yes, certainly. Um, it is a lot of work. <laughs> and if you have someone to do it for you, <laughs> yes, all right. So we're the handmaidens of literary criticism, is that it? Yeah? Always the simple, the humble servant. <laughs> and actually, you know, and I'm not kidding, but this is, this is uh, um, you know, in various pubs around the area where people have said to me, like, oh, yeah. You do such fantastic work, you know. You you take the time, you've got the patience, you've got the skills to look at all these manuscripts and figure out the variants and how it should be. Hey, we're so grateful to you because then you're doing all this, and then we can start the real work. 
wasn't my view. No, 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 I'm not saying it is your view. I'm just saying, oh gosh, you know, if I, I'd, be a, I'd be a rich person if I um, got pound for every time someone's not really stuck with well, you know, maybe I have 15 quid in the bank. Because um, fair enough, I'm just a single person as well. Anyway. <laughs> so why, yeah, why, why do it when we have, certainly again now, we've got access. You know, it used to be before we had the internet, you know, where where do you find the first folio of Shakespeare? Well, there's a couple across the road in Senate Houses, British Library. How many people, how many scholars, literary scholars, then have the time to do that? So there is that preparatory element, there is doing that service. But also, given the complex issues, um, it's a skill, okay? And it's having the knowledge of these rationales and having thought about and discussed these rationales, having discussed these specific bibliographical problems with colleagues. And that's where the value, the value lies. Okay? I put that term on editing on there. And certainly, um, this has been suggested a couple of times. On editing also comes. Uh, I think it is uh, a Random Cloud, isn't it, who came up with... Random Cloud and Leo Marcus. Yeah. Who kind of said, you know, in the middle of the controversy over, over Shakespeare, they said, well, perhaps it's time to stop editing Shakespeare for a while. After the, after the old authors. Yeah. Um, and certainly since the advent of um, digital editing... Uh, people have said the same initially because you know you can do such wonderful things with computers. They said you know perhaps our primary focus is simply to make all these texts available, and then users, critics, scholars can do with them what they want. Um, but quickly, um, people have come back from that exactly because if you haven't got the patience to study the textual history and spend hours poring over manuscripts and variants and collations and all that, you don't really know what to do. And you end up um, with actually people perhaps making arbitrary decisions. So you might say you've got three, you know, you take you take Hamlet, you've got three versions, you've got Q1, Q2, the good quarto, the bad quarto, and the ugly folio, no, the, the, the folio, the beautiful folio. Um, and it's like, you know, what's, you've, and you've got variance between those. It's like, okay, which, which suits my purposes best? So it becomes a matter of cherry-picking rather than the consistent application of that rationale. Okay? And that's one of the reasons why editing is still important and why it's still ongoing. Um, so, of course, an editor confronts uh, specific... Um, uh, specific problems, and it's kind of, and I've borrowed this from uh, Ian Small and Marcus Walsh, an uh, introduction to a book on the theory and practice of text editing. So there's a variety of textual or physical embodiments in which the text presents themselves, and that's a bibliographical and not kind of problem. The generic diversity of the works we edit. Okay? Editing poetry might be different from editing fiction or a novel. And the different purposes for which we edit. Okay? And that is, in my view, a very important one. I'm going to come back to that. So who is it for? Okay. 
I've already said publishers still like to market their scholarly editions, their expensive scholarly editions, because they're not cheap usually. You know, they start at around eighty pounds or hundred pounds or more. Um, they still believe that um, they should be edited for the general reader. And if you think of that shelf life, um, that makes sense. Um, so, yes, the general reader. But I put question marks behind all of these. Because um, I think we perhaps need to rethink that a little bit. And actually, you know, to be a bit cynical, if we look at usage, if we look at citations, um, we're going to find more citations of the Oxford World Classics than we do of the OUP extensive scholarly editions. Um, because when it comes to it, the text is what people are interested in. Um, and of course, you know, it's the budgets of libraries and the budgets um, that you have yourselves. Um, how much does the World Classics cost? £10, £12 versus £100? It is, it is different. So actually, one of the primary purposes for which a scholarly edition is made, the history, recording the history of the text and how it came into being, how it was disseminated, how it was received, is the least used aspect of the, of the scholarly edition. When a scholarly edition is cited, it's usually just because the text is quoted, not who reads, who's ever read an apparatus of the critical edition? <laughs> well, me. Not read it from cover to cover, but... And that, in a sense, well, you know, so... I think we should be asking ourselves the question, are we really editing for the general reader? Okay. And I think it's a question that comes out of digital scholarly editing, where you get the same kinds of arguments. Like, it's nice to have this wonderful, complex tool on the web, but you can't read it on the bus. You can't use it in the classroom because students will want to have... Well, perhaps the digital scholarly edition isn't made for the student, isn't made for um, Shakespeare 101. Perhaps it's a different kind of user. Perhaps it is a specialist user that we have in mind. Of course, for the publishers, this presents a major problem because they are looking at profit margins. Okay. And it's a competitive and difficult enough market to begin with. Um, but I think we need to ask uh, the question. Okay, uh, just a quick, quick um, recap, really, um, of schools in scholarly editing. The first I'll dwell a little bit longer on, because um, it kind of, I want to say something in addition to what. Catherine has said before. The others, I think she's dealt with uh, extensively enough um, in order to, for me to, uh, to skip this. And I put this, these kind of general circles here, because this side of the slide tends towards intentionalist editing. This side of the slide tends towards representing historical texts or historical documents in their own right. Okay, and this one's sort of sitting somewhere halfway between the two, perhaps a bit more on that side, but still a bit on that side. Um, but I want to say a little bit more about copy text because it is um, it is one of the fundamental concepts 
install the editing. Um, it's also a concept that often is not sufficiently understood. Okay? Because it has a general sense, but actually it also has a very specific sense. So is copy text base text, or are they two different things? Um, on one level you can say, and in practical terms, usually yes, the copy text is the base text. But to distinguish between the two, the base text could be any text. It just could be any text from which you start. It doesn't have to be the copy text. It might just be a little bit more practical that you use it as the copy text. The copy text is the one that, from a bibliographical point of view, is the most authoritative. So, if you have a TypeScript, say, typed by the author, and a TypeScript typed by, the, by a typist, possibly deriving from the same source, hypothetical situation, the one typed by the author will have more authority because it is closer to the author, despite the fact that it might actually contain more errors, because the author is not a good typist. Okay? And the reason for that is because of the accidentals. Okay? This, this accidentals and substantives is, are two terms that Greg introduces in his famous essay, The Rationale of Copy Text. Um, the author's text, the, sorry, the TypeScript that the author typed might, be, might contain more errors, but in terms of the things that are difficult to determine, the punctuation, the capitalization, the italicization, that is going to be closer to what he or she intended. Whereas the typist might impose his or her own customs, his or her own practice. Okay? Um, the substantives, on the other hand, these are the actual words. We can, when, by comparing, we can begin to see easily where the errors lie. With punctuation, it's a bit more difficult. Now, Greg was working, Greg was working in early modern texts, uh, early modern words. And only in a minority of cases do we have manuscripts or anything like that. Only in a small number of cases, and again, I stand corrected if on that if need be, in terms of the quantity. But not all the authors saw their texts, Shakespeare certainly did, not all the authors saw their texts through the printing press. So, to add to that, that spelling was quite fluid, punctuation is always quite fluid. Um, so, in terms of having a text you know, with variants that doesn't come from the author, and one word is italicized and another is not, there's no way of telling which really is the right one. In a case of drugs versus grudges, we can begin, at least even if we haven't got an original, original an, a, an autographed document, we can at least begin to make critical evaluations about which word must be the correct one and it could be because of the frequency of use. Um, it could be because one of the variants occurs more often 
than the other. So I guess traditionally, because drugs was present in more in, in, in the quarto and the folio, is that correct? Yeah, the quarto and folio. So quarto folio agree against Q3, mm -hmm. so you go with the reading that is most frequent. Okay? And that's another argument to make. So with substance, substantives, with the actual words, you can rely on your judgment. You know, sometimes there's a word that doesn't make sense. Kovivi, which occurs in Shakespeare. Okay? Just doesn't make sense. So you're not going to put that in your edition if you've got another word. Um, but again, with the punctuation, there's no way of telling. Because the, the printing process and the, the spelling conventions were so fluid. So, what does Greg say? Okay, you have established on bibliographical grounds that one text generally is more authoritative because it looks as if it's closer to the author. Okay, so whenever there's doubt, particularly with accidentals, you follow the copy text. So the copy text in that theoretical construction can be different from the base text. It doesn't have to be, but can be. And um, in that, it is, it's, not, it's a text that guides you. You follow the copy text when there's no other means of arbitration, rather than the copy text being the text that you edit. If that makes sense. It's a theoretical distinction. It's in practical terms, the copy text will be the text that you edit. But it's a theoretical distinction that is important to understand in effect, what an eclectic edition is. An eclectic edition is because you choose from different available editions. You choose the best reading, and you amalgamate them in your critical text. So, you're back to you know, our example of the typescript, the hypothetical example of the typescript, one by the author, one by a typist. Um, in terms of punctuation, you would follow the author's typescript. But when it comes to the actual words, you might follow, you might choose to incorporate the typist's words into your edited text because the author was a very bad typist and actually produced more mistakes. Okay, so it's, it's, it's blending, it's literally pulling words from different witnesses. Yes? Can I just ask what, how you might think about an issue in which your author was not formally educated and therefore habitually made spelling and grammatical mistakes in a way that, you know, if you're marking a student's essay, you'd be correcting, but, and, and writes about the fact that she makes mistakes, but... You're, and, and therefore, you know when you're reading a manuscript version, that manuscript version's both got, it's both got idiosyncrasies, but it's also got simple mistakes, it's got mistakes in it. I mean, how, how would you begin to think about that in a, uh -huh. in a way that helps you gain an authoritative well, it text? Depends, um, it depends what your purpose is for that edition. If your purpose is to present a text produced by this uneducated author, uh, but actually preserve their own frame of mind in which they worked. 
Um, you could make a case for simply reproducing those errors. <clears throat> However, you could say, well, perhaps this author would be embarrassed to see his or her work in print like that. Um, and they expected that someone would correct their spelling mistakes. In which case, you go with the correction. Um, a case in point which often is misunderstood, and actually it doesn't, it doesn't have any editorial implications whatsoever, but Yeats notoriously was a bad speller. Well, no, he was not a bad speller, he was a hasty writer. Um, so, when you look at Yeats's drafts, you see words you know, spelled in a very weird way. They're actually not spelling mistakes. They are literal transcriptions of the sounds rather than spelling, which I think are two different things to begin with. But some of these, actually in terms of spelling, all of these are removed by the time he has a fair copy. You know, there might be two or three stages, but you see the mistakes disappearing. Now, when it comes to punctuation, he was a bit less certain. Um, and actually, punctuation then does have an editorial implication. And initially, certainly, well, okay, well, he moves, he had several publishers, but in the um, late 1910s, early 1920s, he moves to Macmillan, and he begins working with uh, one of Macmillan's editors, a man called Thomas Mark. And Thomas Mark's very conscientious, and whenever he gets a uh, typescript and, and before it goes, even before the text is set up, Mark writes to Yates and says, You wrote here such and such, uh, I don't think there's a comma needed here. And Yates replies, Okay, yeah, you're right, uh, correct that for me, please. And that happens for a number of years until a certain point when, again, Mark is sending queries, and Yates says, Fine, you, you don't need to ask me anymore. Um, you've, I've, you've worked with me for so many years, you know, you know, first of all, you know better how to do punctuation than I do, and I trust your judgment. You, you can't launch as it were to change those, those aspects. And at that point, Thomas Mark becomes a collaborator. Um, and I think in that particular instance, it would be foolish to revert to, say, a TypeScript version with Yeats' own punctuation, because Yeats has transferred that authority to, uh, to his editor. Okay. Now, it's possible that the editor might make a mistake, in which case, well, they I mean, might be able to construct a particular argument on that particular issue, but then it's difficult, because with punctuation, it's always difficult. Because I can see what you're saying, and also, I think Rory was alluding to this sort of thing, that that you need, where, it's where you don't have very much evidence yeah. to make that. So, so yeah. you know, the author that I'm working on, she writes and then she gets someone mm. to type up. Uh -huh. And often when she's got a typescript back, she'll re-put in her weird punctuation. Uh -huh. But then that's gone by the time it's in print. Yeah. So, but I can't find exactly a way of, find, you know, discovering yeah. whether she's pleased in a fact when it's printed that her weird punctuation, yeah. because she yeah. never was formally taught... 
is, is cleared. Yeah. And whether it's just that when she gets the typescript back, it doesn't look right to her, so, but actually she's pleased that her publisher's done yeah. what the public... You know, those things become quite hard to work it, out what it, you're going to do. They do, but that's, that's right. And it depends also on exactly how much archival evidence or bibliographical evidence you, you have for her reverting, okay? If you've got, if you've got for every work, uh, every text, a typescript in which she reverts, then I would argue, go with what's in the typescript, because that's clearly what she wanted. Because yeah. no. she's, she's trying, she's she's trying to overrule <laughs> house style, yeah, essentially. No, no. Yeah, I understand. Um, yeah. But if the, if the record is partial, then yeah. you've got a real problem. <clears throat> I, had a, I had an argument um, with the editors of uh, the Conrad Cambridge edition. Um, Conrad... Okay, manuscripts, very widely punctuated. Typed by his wife Jessie, and she would begin to add some punctuation. Regularise it, regularise it, but also add more. Conrad revises the typescript and usually doesn't change Jessie's additions to the punctuation, but he might add a few more periods and commas and all that. Then it goes to a magazine or to publishers and it gets not stripped out, you know, particularly 1890s to 1910, house styling with magazines. It's heavy punctuation. Yeah. Okay. In the trade editions, the book editions, some of that punctuation disappears again. Um, but nonetheless, it's a lot more heavier than it is in the typescript. Um, so what do you do? And what is what is the what is Conrad's position? Is he is it is his final intention? Is that the typescript, which might be more complete? Sorry, which might be more complete than the manuscript, but not perhaps as complete as one might wish it to be. Um, but then the, the first English edition is a lot more complete than perhaps he might wish it to be. So there's the middle, the middle ground we actually don't have. We actually don't have a stage where we see him sitting together with an editor and say, okay, I agree to that comma, I agree to that period, etc. So what do you, what do, you do? Does, does Conrad in the end accept, as most authors do, that there is house style because that was the convention at the time? And therefore, there's a sense of tacit acceptance, okay? And again, the authority over a work, the intention over a work, is over the work as a whole, not each individual phrase or period or, or comma. Um, and the argument was about, with, that I had with the editors, was about going back to the typescripts, which in itself is fine, Okay, because there is okay, it might not be as complete perhaps as Conrad wanted, but then you can say, well, but it's closer to the original moment. Okay, it's a primitivism, it's primitive versus whatever else you would call it uh, argument. However, the argument really was about the cases where we didn't have typescripts anymore, we don't have typescripts anymore, we only have magazine publication and book publication. And what the editors were doing was reconstructing Conrad's method of light punctuation in the typescript. So they had analysed the typescripts meticulously 
and had established Colorado's convention. And to my taste, that is a radical step to take. Um, I'm not saying that it's not possible to see general principles, but how do you retroactively apply those principles? You know, it's a, it becomes a conjectural reconstruction rather than an editorial intervention. Um, and I was sort of dismissed by saying, oh, but, oh, this collaboration argument, no, we don't accept that. Conrad did not want to collaborate with his publishers. Which in itself, I think, is, is nonsense, because by virtue of publishing a book, you collaborate with a publisher. You might not fully agree, but then every author has that sense also that you might not necessarily want mistakes to appear in print either, so they're happy for that little bit of intervention. But again, because you can't, you know, it's a general acceptance. It's a general signing off, not a signing off on each individual word that the problem is. But it also depends on where your position is on intention, doesn't it? it yes. So, absolutely. I mean, in, yeah. in why I have one of my most controversial um, uh, thing about my Lovecraft stuff that I was doing for Oscar World's Classics was that, um, so the first magazine editions re-paragraphed uh, his work. Um, and he complained bitterly about the re-paragraphing, but mm-hmm. he was wrong. Because uh, he read much better in the in the paragraphing kind of style, and if you want to get if you wanted to communicate the energy of pulp magazines on first publication, mm-hmm. then I was kind of arguing, well, maybe we should go with it's a collaboration with. I mean, I don't like it, but it's collaborating with mm-hmm. an editor who's re-paragraphed it, mm-hmm. so we're going to go with that. But of course, if you if you are someone who worships the intention of Lovecraft, as many people do, I discovered, mm-hmm. um, this is a you know what a bitter betrayal yeah. of the yeah. uh, of the intent of the author. Yeah. But my kind of position was, well, I actually I don't care too much uh-huh. about the intention of the author. It's more about trying to reconstruct yeah. the experience of that kind of first edition. Yeah. In, in, in that case, and I think in the case of Conrad, I would say you've got different purposes. Editions mm. are different time, kinds of mediation. You have more than one kind of mediation in the history of the text. And as long as you're upfront about that and say, okay, this is a choice that I've made mm. and this is a defensible choice, even though it might not be to everyone's taste, but it's, it is a defensible choice. When you start reconstructing something, I think that's a different case. That becomes yeah. Yeah. because there's well, there's three types uh, of, of of editing. And there's editing on the basis of the evidence. There's editing on the basis of we want to make it consistent. And you sometimes make, which is what Scott was talking about. You sometimes go a little bit further than the actual documentation and bibliographical information, bibliographical evidence tells you. And then there's thinking you know the author. And that's the dangerous bit where you edit according to how you understand the author. Um, Or even how you think you understand the period. Um, Just to, to be slightly controversial, that notion of putting the aesthetic before the editing is something that makes me slightly uncomfortable. Because uh, in, in the first instance, it's the circumstances of production that you need to look at, and how how the print, how the publishing process, how the printing process, how the exchange between author and publisher 
compositor and proofreader, etc., how that how that works and what you can learn from that. Um, rather than being worried about does that make my work less modernist? To give you an example, Finnegan's Wake, okay, Finnegan's Wake now has been edited. And actually it makes it a little bit easier. Because a lot of you know the printing in Finnegan's Wake in 1939 was garbled. So a difficult text was made more difficult by virtue of all the printing errors. You do a restoration, um, the principles by which are themselves perhaps slightly complex and not totally transparent, but I won't bore you with that. But you do a restoration on the basis of what you find in manuscripts and authoritative documents, and actually your text looks more transparent, which goes against anything that anyone knows about feeling its way, and yet that's the way it works. So it doesn't make it more transparent as a whole, of course. But, uh, Okay, um, how are we doing for time for breaks and all that? Uh, we've got coffee coming in about 10 minutes. Okay, right. Okay, I'm going to uh, skip this then. Uh, Catherine talked about it anyway. I will share the slides so you can, uh, uh, you can have a lead through uh, that. And, uh, you know, I'm always you know, contactable as well and uh, happy to... In local pubs, by the sound of it. In local pubs as well, yes. Yeah. So, what is an error? If you want to correct a text, you need to first find out what's wrong with it. Um, okay, so, James Joyce's Ulysses, Joe, you not playing along. Um, this is James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, 1922 edition. Where is the error? <laughs> oh, turn type on the error. Okay, okay, yeah. But you can see actually someone's, you know, had a go at this copy, recognized it, and corrected it by hand. So that's not the one I was, uh, <laughs> uh, I was you know, interested in. Okay, this is um, a manuscript 